This episode, I'm joined by Stephanie Rents, who is an English professor at the College of the Holy Cross and has published a short story collection called The Kissing List. In this episode, we discuss her book, I Meant to Kill Ye, a book about Cormac McCarthy's novel, Blood Meridian. I'd like to thank all my paid patrons and subscribers for making all of this work possible. And if you'd like to support the podcast, please find links in the description below. Enjoy. Um, so, Stephanie Rents, thanks very much for coming on to Hermetics podcast. Uh, we are going to be discussing sort of two books. So, we're going to be discussing your book, which is called I Meant to Kill Ye, which is a, I want to say commentary, but it's not exactly a direct commentary. It's also not sort of a, a scholarly overview, but it is a book relating to Cormac McCarthy's novel, Blood Meridian, um, or The Evening of, uh, the evening Redness in the West. Now, uh, we'll get to why I don't really want to say, I don't want to define your book, because it's, it's hard to define what it is. Um, but before we sort of get into those two books and Cormac McCarthy's work, um, just tell us a little bit about yourself and what it is you do, and also, you know, why you decided to write this book. Sure. So I am a fiction writer. Um, I, I published a story collection um, called um, The Kissing List, and I just finished another story collection, which will hopefully get published. Um, I, I'm an English professor at uh, College of the Holy Cross, which is a Jesuit liberal, liberal arts college in Worcester, Massachusetts. Um, and uh, I... Uh, have been long interested in uh, Blood Meridian, a book that I first read in 1992, which was the year that All the Pretty Horses was published. And that was Cormac McCarthy's first commercial success. And that is what uh, brought Cormac McCarthy into my life, the publication of All the Pretty Horses. Okay, okay. Um, so actually, yeah, before we get into your book, um, it's, this is quite a strange one for me to be asking. So I always ask the hermetics question. Um, you can place three thinkers living or dead into a room and listen in on the conversation. Uh, who do you pick? But I'm really intrigued to this one because for this one, because often in these shows, I'm talking to people with sort of specific interests or uh, we're talking about a specific philosopher. But this is um, this is quite a an over like an overarching episode. So I'm interested to see who you would who would you who you would put in your room. Well, I actually thought quite a bit about this question. Um, I'm not going to put Cormac McCarthy in my room. Um, because I am a fiction writer, I have great affection for contemporary writers of short fiction, especially those working um, in magical realism or of the fantasy genres. So I'm going to choose three very contemporary writers because I would just be interested in hearing them talk about where they get their ideas. Those writers are the Japanese writer Haruki Murakami, um, whose short stories always dazzle me, um, uh, and whose novel Wind Up Bird Chronicles remains one of my very favorite novels of all time. So he would be one of my choices. My second choice would be uh, a writer named Kelly Link, um, who lives in Northampton, Massachusetts. She runs a press called I think it's called Small Bear Press. Um, and she wrote a book called Magic for Beginners, which is just absolutely brilliant um, and quirky. And you read her stories and you have no idea how she pulls off what she does. The third writer I would choose is Amy Bender, uh, whose first story collection, The Girl in the Flammable Skirt, Skirt um, really, I think, did a great job 
of expressing female anger and angst in such a magical way. I think it was Bender who made me see that maybe I could become a writer too. What that the things I had to say about being a woman actually mattered um, and that some of those stories could be told in, um, in just crazy magical ways. Okay. Okay. So the, the room for you is a, is a very practical one. You, you would be, you'd be seeking advice. Um, I don't know so much that I'd be seeking advice um, as I'd be curious about how those three writers, uh, perhaps this is, this is advice in a way, but I'd be curious about how those three writers come up with their ideas. So um, uh, Murakami has a, a story called Barn Burning, mm-hmm. um, which is about a man who goes around, uh, it's, it's told from the perspective of a kind of writer figure, but the subject of the writer figure's gaze is a man who goes around burning barns down. And I would just, I'm just so curious about where Murakami came up with that idea. So uh, I, I just, all of these writers have incredibly interesting imaginations. Um, they are fantastical imaginations, but they are imaginations that also manage to say important things about the kind of the state of being human in this moment. And I, I would just love to hear where their ideas come from and, and perhaps how they have the patience to tease out what these ideas mean. Okay. Is there a reason you 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 wouldn't put Cormac McCarthy in there? You know, it's interesting. I think with some writers, I feel like a lot of what Cormac McCarthy has to say, that what he has to say is actually in his books. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that there's, yeah, I, I guess I'll just, I'll leave it at that. Um, I, I think too, I mean, I think actually you said, you know, that, that these three writers would be a practical choice for me. I think I'm very, very aware that I am not, I will never write like Cormac McCarthy. My um, love for Cormac McCarthy is a bit like my love for Sean Cassidy, my eight-year-old love for Sean Cassidy, who was a kind of teen pop star in the United States in the 1970s. Um, I used to stand in front of my Sean Cassidy poster and I would like part my hair to the same side and feather it back. And I would ask my mother if I looked like Sean Cassidy. Obviously, you know, I was a... (laughs) I was an eight-year-old girl. Sean Cassidy was a 20-something pop star. I was never going to be Sean Cassidy. And similarly, I'm never going to be Cormac McCarthy. And I think in some ways, it's my difference from Cormac McCarthy that makes me love him so much. Um, So um, I don't know. I I, I just, perhaps too, I might be a little bit intimidated by being in a room with Cormac McCarthy. And it's also maybe the case that, I mean, I think there's a lot of kind of misogyny in Cormac McCarthy's work and I might not really like him so much as a person, but I really admire him as a writer. Okay. And I don't need to like the, I don't need to like the writers necessarily to love their books. Okay. I was, I was going to ask because there's, there's, I think many people might know there's quite a lot of scholarship now about how um, Murakami writes women. So I was wondering if, you know, as, as someone you put in your room, if you actually had a comment on that. Yeah, that's, a, I, I, I haven't, <laughs> I, that is a very good point. I have not thought about that a lot, but that, yes, yes, point taken. Uh, well, it's just, it's just interesting. But, it, but, you know, as you say, you can, uh, 
You yeah. can like the writing without liking the writer. Okay. Right. Um. So onto your book, I meant to kill you. How would you How would you describe it? And uh, and why did you Why did you set about writing this strange little text? Yeah. Well, um, the book is part of a series called Afterwards, um, and Afterwards is a new series um, that was started by Fiction Advocate, which is a very small indie publisher out in California. And um, they asked people to write books that would shed light on some of the 20th and 21st century's greatest masterpieces. Uh, the, the charge was to um, write a book that um, was a combination of both um, personal essay or memoir and literary criticism. And it was up to each writer to determine the kind of balance of those things. There, I don't know if you've heard of the series 33 and a Third, which is a series of books about music albums. Um, uh, I think, I haven't. yeah, Bloomsbury publishes publishes them. But these were, so those, those are books that engage, where writers engage with a particular music album that means a lot to them. Um, and similarly, these are books, right, where a writer engages with a novel uh, or I suppose, I don't know if they've done any story collections, but um, uh, uh, engages with a book that means a lot to them. And, and in some way tries to shed light on that book. Okay, okay. So you, um, just from, from first encounter here, you seem like quite a jolly person. So why, why, why Blood Meridian? One of the sort of most violent and um, naturally catastrophic novels of all time? Yeah, that's a great question. <laughs> it's surprising to me that this book has really gotten under my skin. Um, but as I said, I, I read this book when I was 22, um, and um, uh, I was I had an experience while reading it that I've that I've never had um, in reading a book before, which is that there were there were moments in this book that were so um, viscerally disturbing um, that I actually had to close the book, um, and I was incredibly interested in how Cormac McCarthy managed to do that. So that was one thing. Uh, the other thing is that I got to the end of the book and I honestly had no idea what had just happened, <laughs> you know? Um, and so that kind of, um, that confusion led me to read the book again. I also think that I was at a particular moment in my life, Jonathan Franzen has an essay uh, uh, about reading difficult literature and how at particular moments in your life, it can kind of give structure to your life. If you're, if you're going through a hard time or you're sort of at loose ends, uh, that the right book comes along and it provides the structure and discipline that you need. And I was reading this book right when I was about to head off to Oxford um, University. I just won a Rhodes Scholarship. And I was really anxious about that. And I think that this book kind of um, uh, distracted me from some of my anxiety. And I'll also be honest that there was a little bit of a kind of like English major machoism uh, involved in reading this book. It was cool to say when people when people when people said, "Oh, I read all the pretty horses. Isn't it great?" It was very cool to say, "Yeah, it's great, but you really should read Blood Meridian." <laughs> so I was definitely I, I definitely was playing that card too. Okay, so Blood Meridian was sort of the uh, the infinite jest of its day. Yes. <laughs> <I did. laughs> yeah. 
Okay. Yeah. I didn't know that. I know, I know, I understand that Blood Meridian had a very shaky start um, and was basically panned by critics um, originally when it first came out. And um, I'm trying to think of the, the sort of famous um, English scholar who just couldn't get through it and then eventually sort of admitted... I can't remember his name now. Um, Are you thinking of, yeah. Uh, Bloom, um, Bloom. Is it Harold Bloom? Right. Yeah, Bloom yeah. looked it up two or three times and, and couldn't read it. And then he finally did read it and he loved it. Which I think it seems to be, I, I mean, the first time I read it, it was like a stop and start. And then eventually it sort of clicks. Um, mm-hmm. But I think it, Cormac is, is extremely experimental in it, especially for something so early on in your career. Um, more experimental than, than than other things. And once his sort of control of language clicks, it's like, uh, almost like an epiphany in a way, sort of like pinching. Um, but until that moment, until it clicks, it's like a, a real slog, mm-hmm. not a bad slog. Um, so absolutely huge question. Um, how would you describe Blood Meridian? <laughs> it's so difficult. Um, so, you know, Blood Meridian follows a teenager, initially known as the child at the beginning of the novel, later known as the kid, as he joins up, first he joins up with um, Captain White's army, which is a group of men who are um, determined to, who don't like the terms of the um, of the end of the Mexican-American War. Uh, they don't think the Mexicans can govern themselves. And so they're determined to go back into Mexico and um, continue fighting, even though the Mexican-American War is over. Uh, Captain White, White's army is quickly slaughtered um, by, um, Native Americans. And, um, at this point, the, uh, the kid joins up with the Glanton game, which is a group of scout scout hunters. So mid 19th century scout hunters actually drawn from history. Uh, the governor of Chihuahua, um, a, a Northern state in Mexico actually was hiring people to hunt Apaches down. Um, because the Apaches were preying upon relatively um, defenseless um, Mexican vill- villagers. So the kid joins up with uh, the Glanton gang and the Glanton gang, in my estimation, quickly descends into madness, uh, basically killing anyone and everyone who crosses their path. So initially their actions are motivated by money. Initially they are, um, hunting Apaches and collecting their scalps and taking them back to Chihuahua city to redeem them for, for bounty. Uh, but later on, they start killing Mexican villagers. They kill the Sonoran cavalry. They kill babies. They kill mules. They kill young women. They kill peaceful native Americans. They kill puppies, teenage boys, etc. They're incredibly murderous. And then the gang kind of falls apart at a, at a certain point in the novel. But I think it's important to know that McCarthy did historical, extensive historical research for this novel. Um, the prototype for the kid, Glanton, and for Judge Holden comes from a mid 19th century memoir called My Confession by Samuel Chamberlain. And Samuel Chamberlain was uh, a veteran of the Mexican American War at the end of his time, uh, uh, at, the, at, the, at the end of his time fighting in the Mexican American War. Um, he claims that he joined up with the Glanton gang, um, which was, Glanton was a real person. The gang was a real group. Um, and he claims he met Judge Holden, um, though Holden does not appear in any other historical 
materials from the time. So it's not clear whether uh, Judge Holden was a real figure. So, um, so yeah, so that's, you know, that, that, that's what, I mean, the book is, is about a group of mid 19th century scalp hunters. And I think the, the book makes all of the kind of reviews you read of the book or the, the, the copy on the book makes great, you know, really emphasizes the fact that it is based upon historical material, which I think is part of the book's kind of, um, allure, mm -hmm. um, as well as its horror. Yeah. Um, it's interesting you, you, you mentioned a descent into madness, because I think the descent into madness is so gradual. Um, you know, when you mentioned that basically anyone the Glanton gang come across, they're going to kill. And there's sort of a point, point I think, for the reader, sort of maybe even a quarter of the way through, halfway through, when it gets to the point when Glanton gang meet anyone, all you're thinking is at what point you know, and how are they sort of going to justify this killing or are they even going to bother? But you you, you just sort of understand at any point when the Glanton gang is, is sort of in communication with something living, all you're waiting for is, you know, when is when is this sort of natural violence which they've allowed themselves to be sort of taken over by just going to <laughs> overthrow everything and take over the, the narrative. It's always in the background. I think that's an important thing to sort of mention. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. It is always in the background. And yet at the same time, it's always shocking. I, I think interestingly enough, I mean, some of the most um, shocking moments for, for me are those where the Glanton gang kills someone or something um, that is completely harmless. So for instance, when the judge um, buys the puppies and then uh, pitches them into the river to drown, or when the Glancing Gang pushes all the mules off the cliff, you know, when they're descending into a canyon, or when the judge scalps the Native American, or, or rather, yeah, kills and scalps the Native American child who he's just been dandling on, like, dandling on his knee. Um, so, um, and it's, and I, and I think that's a real purposeful choice on McCarthy's part, because, you know, you, you come to the end of the novel and you think to yourself, gosh, why was I so upset when that, when those puppies were killed? Um, and why wasn't I more upset when a whole, you know, village of Helenio Indians were slaughtered? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and, it, and, it, and it makes you realize, I think, the extent to which, or it makes me realize the extent to which I've kind of internalized some of the values of the Western. Yeah. Right? So what do you, oh, yeah. sorry, sorry, go ahead. Well, where it is kind of, it's part of the Western's plot for Native Americans to be killed. Uh, I see. So this, I mean, this is one of the, I think, maybe uh, scholarly sort of debates is it in what sense can we consider this a Western or an anti-Western? And, and I think do you consider it an anti-Western. I consider it an anti-Western because I think in, and I'm no expert on the Western, so you could have other people on this podcast who could speak um, uh, more authoritatively on the Western. But I think in most Westerns, violence is either characterized, is, is oftentimes characterized as inevitable, right? Um, uh, it's in service to the idea, uh, the very powerful idea in American culture of manifest destiny, right? Um, or the notion that um, European Americans were charged by God 
to occupy the continent, right? That that was our God-given duty. Um, so uh, it's either inevitable um, or it's heroic. And by that, I mean um, that the violence is in service to the idea that European Americans were bringing Christianity to the quote unquote heathen, um, that European Americans were spreading democratic ideals to people who couldn't govern themselves or who didn't already have sophisticated forms of government, um, or that uh, European Americans were quote unquote freeing natural resources, you know, that would lead to the accumulation of wealth and industrialization. Mm -hmm. Uh, so I do think that those are um, that in most Westerns, you know, that that they provide some kind of like moral justification for violence. And I don't think that that happens in this novel. You think McCarthy sort of emphasizes the violence to such a degree that you, you can no longer really find any sort of moral bearing within it. Ex absolutely. Okay, okay. I think one one character like uh, that the novel is infamous for, and I think in some famous list at some point he was characterized as the the most evil character who uh, who's ever been put in you know anything ever, which I would agree with simply because I when I say character, obviously I'm going to be talking about the judge or Judge Holden. Um, when you say character, it's actually quite difficult to describe him as a character because uh, multiple times he alludes even sort of the author's description in that there's multiple times, you know, people think he might represent the devil or um, I think there's mm -hmm. people who believe that it's some sort of Gnostic allegory for something um, or that he may just be this supernatural eternal being. Um, but it, but it is, it seems to be judge Holden who consistently is able to channel the Glanton gang towards what they're doing. He's sort of the leader um, in a, in a strange sense. Um, so how would you, um, characterize the judge oh gosh you know <laughs> <laughs> i think the judge uh the judge gives me the most trouble in this novel um when we first meet the judge you know early in the novel he walks into that um tent um church service mm -hmm. And he uh, accuses the preacher of having committed all of these terrible sins, right? Um, having raped uh, a teenager and had sex with a goat. And he speaks in such an educated, eloquent way, right? He, he is, it feels he's the judge, right? He's the voice of reason and the voice of the law. And, um, and it's quite easy to be persuaded by him in that early scene. And then several beats later, we learn that the judge has never ever set eyes on the preacher before. Um, and so all of this was just like, it, it was all just a kind of spectacle of violence as well as like, um, I think it it's about what you can accomplish through intellect or reason, right? So, um, so the, the judge sort of provides the um, the rationalization for violence, right? The um, apology for violence, um, the, uh, the impetus for violence. And we generally think about those things, we think about those 
things being connected to um, some kind of morality. <laughs> I mean, I think we think that reason is connected to, um, to good or goodness. And, and it turns out that that is not the case in the judge. And I think that's what, you know, what happens if you can, if you can, if you can always offer a justification for, um, for the terrible things you're going to do. Mm -hmm. I think that's what makes it deeply disturbing. Yeah. I mean, now I've come to think of it, it is sort of, um, it's quite jarring when you first meet the judge because amidst, um, the, you know, Cormac McCarthy always has this sort of strict adherence to, to dialect and how people would actually talk. And obviously, you know, we're dealing mostly in the novel with a lot of people who would be illiterate and don't speak very well or just sort of mumble. And the judge is this sort of, as you say, if you're trying to find a moral voice, you're going to attach yourself to whatever the most intellectual or reasonable voice is. And unfortunately, the only one we're given in Blood Meridian is the one of someone who is unavoidably sort of pure evil. Um, so you did a lot of uh, research for your book. So is there anything is there anything that came up about the judge other than this sort of snippet from Confessions um, that that altered your opinion of him? And, and whereabouts did you do this research from? Well, I, I mean, so I, I mean, I hardly, you can hardly call it doing research. I mean, I read um, Samuel Chamberlain's memoir, which was quite interesting because it's a, it's a sentimental memoir. And so everything is mediated through emotion in his memoir. Mm -hmm. And that radically changes the experience uh, of reading um, about someone, about a murder, for example. You know, Samuel Chamberlain participates in the murder of a, of a Native American, and then he feels incredibly guilty afterwards. And uh, the consequence is that you get kind of absorbed by his guilt, and you forget about the fact that he just murdered an innocent Native American. Um, you, you also, I think, are able to identify with Samuel Chamberlain, you know, like you're not alone in being a spectator um, on a terrible deed, uh, which is the experience of reading Blood Meridian. You watch these terrible things happen. No one else is reflecting upon the terrible things that are happening. And as a result, the novel is a very lonely read. But getting back to your original, so I read I read Samuel Chamberlain's memoir. I also, I went to the, I went to, the McCarthy archives at Texas State University, and I read earlier drafts of the novel. And I, uh, I was particularly interested in, in if I could find sort of snippets of the kid's psychology, um, if I could, if there were moments where the kid reflected on things, and if that would somehow help me understand the kid better. But as far as the judge goes, I mean, the, the one thing that McCarthy was just scrupulous about um, as he revised this novel is just cutting out any instances of foreshadowing, any moments that would allow you to uh, predict that something violent was going to happen. So for example, when the gang rides into um, a kind of crumbling enclosure where there's some miners and there's the half dead mule or horse and there's a teenage boy who winds up with a broken neck the next day. Uh, in that scene, in an earlier draft of the novel, the judge says to the gang, who is this darling boy? Mm -hmm. And the use of the word darling 
you know, is just enough to indicate that the judge has some special interest in the boy and to suggest that something terrible might happen to the boy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there were, um, I'm, I, I don't recall if there were any other moments like that um, with respect to the judge, but there were many moments, many moments like that where uh, there had been more foreshadowing in the in the earlier drafts of the novel, and then they had completely um, dropped out. Okay, I think we'll come back to that because um, it's sort of a question of you mentioned in your book about how Cormac, um, sorry, I should say McCarthy. I'm not, I'm not his friend. Um, how he deals with causality in time, but um, the kid plays uh, sort of the major role in your book, and that was the this almost seems to be the center point of your your interest and your research. So. What does the kid sort of represent to you and why why were you so interested in were you trying to find some sort of redeemable aspect of this narrative from whether or not the kid has this you know psychological um, at least some sense of guilt or what's going on mm-hmm. Well let me ask you a question I mean <laughs> what's your experience of the kid and have you ever uh, so i i was very interested in this question of, of whether the kid evolved morally over the course of the novel see i from i would i always read it as just the kid becomes basically this vessel of mm. he he just i don't remember well i don't i don't see unfortunately i, I perhaps i'm too pessimistic but i just didn't see any evolution from the kid um, yeah. and in fact even though i would say that he becomes this vessel and he takes on um, he, he, I think he, at minor points, he seems to take on a bit of the Glanton gang's characteristics, but he almost seems just entirely lost, like a complete alien to whatever's going on, um, almost like, um, like a just an unconscious bit of flesh. Does it sound very horrible? But he doesn't seem to take anything on in the sense that he's, he's just been so overwhelmed that it's almost like he's just, uh, just following them because he has nothing else to do. Like his existence has no other purpose than just to follow these people yeah 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 i mean i i can totally i see that point i i think i was interested in the fact that at pivotal moments in the novel the kid appears to demonstrate loyalty to the gang that other members of the gang don't even demonstrate to the gang to mm-hmm. one another so um the kid you know draws an arrow out of brown's leg um the kid uh doesn't shoot Shelby, right? When he's he's been he's he's chosen the chit and it's his job to uh to kill Shelby and he leaves them out there. He leaves Shelby alive in the desert. Um uh there are many, many, many other moments where the kid seems to act as though he feels some sense of loyalty to the gang. Um and so I was interested in that. I was also interested in the fact that um that at the end of the novel, after the Glanton gang has fallen apart and most members of the gang are dead, the kid seems to be determined to find those who might still be alive. So he searches for Toadvine. Uh, he searches for the fool. Um, later on, out in the desert, he comes across that old Native American woman in a cave and he speaks to her. It's his longest speech in the novel, although it's summarized. But he appears to tell her his whole life history. And then it turns out it's all for naught because she's already dead, right? It's just her body has been preserved out in the desert. So um, so I was interested in if there, 
I was interested in the possibility of there being a kind of pattern of action in the novel that suggested that the kid um, did have some sort of like um, moral center. Um, I was interested in why McCarthy might do that. Um, I was interested in why as a novelist, McCarthy would appear to introduce the kid as the protagonist of the novel, right? We begin with the kid but then essentially have the kid disappear through the middle section of the novel and particularly through many of the most um, violent uh, massacres in the middle of the novel and then bring him back in the end. Um, and I was also interested in what I saw as a kind of opposition that McCarthy was setting up between the kid and the judge. There are many instances of the kid and the judge looking at one another and I was interested in what that opposition was supposed to suggest um, to a reader. What do, what do you think it suggests? Well, so I think for a long time, I wanted to, I wanted to see, I wanted to, I wanted to believe that the kid did evolve morally over the course of the novel. This was a question that I asked my students every time I taught this novel, the, the essay question was, does the kid evolve morally? Discuss. Um, and uh, so I think I wanted the kid to evolve morally because I wanted there to be something redeeming about this novel, right? I wanted to come out at the end of it and say, oh, well, it was not all for naught for not that I read this novel. But I think in writing this book, I finally realized, or maybe I finally got you know, wise enough to accept the fact that the kid does not evolve morally, right? The kid can't evolve morally. He's got so much blood on his hands, right? If you're a killer of men and you're a slightly better killer of men than other killer of men, you're still a killer, mm -hmm. right? But I do think that, I think McCarthy needed to create the appearance or the illusion of the kid changing in order, well, first of all, I think to kind of get readers to interrogate their own expectations or their own desires for the novel mm -hmm. and also to get readers to read to the end of the novel. Do you think, um, arguably as sort of the most quote unquote innocent character who sort of is subsumed into this as opposed to already being of it, the, mm -hmm. the kid can be forgiven in some ways. And those moments are those moments, which are sort of questionable in terms of um, the novel's morality, which involve the kid, are, are these sort of, um, you know, these moments of him glimpsing back to, to, to before he, he got just overwhelmed by this, uh, this strange force? I don't know. I don't know if the kid can be forgiven. Um, <laughs> I think the kid wants to be forgiven. And I, I, I think the kid wants to be forgiven. I think the narrator punishes the kid time and time again in the final chapters of the novel when the kid does try to connect to other human beings. Every time that happens, the narrator comes, interrupts and prevents it from happening. That, that seems very, um, that seems very intentional to me. But whether or not we should, I think we want to forgive the kid, but I don't, I don't think we should. <laughs> Do you think that's perhaps what the tension is between the kid and the judge in that the judge has sort of just accepted this? I don't want 
I'm not saying it's a meta novel, but the, the judge has accepted the narrative of his existence. Um, whereas the kid is still trying to push against it, even though the judge understands, you know, no amount of pushing against it will ever, every time the kid pushes against it, the, uh, it just, as you say, sort of hammers down on him. Whereas the judge has accepted mm-hmm. it and the judge sort of wants the kid to just, just, just accept it and, you know, lay down. Yes, I think you're absolutely right. And I love what you said, that the judge has just accepted the narrative of the violence. And, you know, the judge accuses the kid of having reserved some clemency for the heathen in his heart. And I, I would say, um, I'm not sure that's true, but uh, but if the kid has reserved some clemency for the heathens, so what? Did it change his actions? You know, and so, yes, so the, the kid can resist the narrative. He can push against the narrative, but he's still a player. Mm-hmm. You know, he's still a figure in that narrative. And and that's precisely the kind of like, the resistance to the narrative is precisely the move that we see, for instance, Chamberlain making in his memoir, right? Where he commits terrible acts but then he feels bad about them. But does that change the fact that he has committed terrible acts? It makes us feel better about him as a character because it makes us feel like he has a conscience, Mm -hmm. but it doesn't change the force of those actions. One, one other thing that you focus on a lot with respect to the kid is his sort of um, elusive, elusive note, which I'm hoping you can sort of expand on, which you, it seems to be one of the things that you really sought out trying to, figure out what exactly this note that the kid has is. Right. Um, yeah, there's a, well, right. So in, in an earlier draft of the novel, um, uh, when the kid at the end of the novel comes, a, comes upon the group of children who are um, bone pickers, um, a group of orphans, he asks, them to read this note that he's carrying around and um and the note says the bearer of this note will kill you (laughs) i talk in my book about how i initially i misread the note i didn't i i thought that um i didn't see what the note said it's kind of written in the margins of the manuscript and i was reading quickly and so i didn't i knew there was a note i knew it had a certain number of words but i didn't know what it said and i thought it was somehow the key to understanding the kid And when I finally went back and looked at my notes carefully, I saw that, in fact, I did know what the note said. And it said that the bearer of the note will kill you. And I just, I felt like that, I could see why McCarthy cut that out of the novel because it felt too easy, right? Because it's sort of, in a way, that's the kid's fate, right? It felt like the the note had the force of fate or the force of some mythic pronouncement that anytime the kid came into contact with another human being, he was just fated to kill that person. I thought that it was more interesting if there was a kind of tension between um, between the kid's desire to connect with people and the novel's kind of insistence that that couldn't happen. Um, I thought it was slightly more complicated to leave the note out. <laughs> okay. So this is sort of going back to that question of um, foreshadowing and Cormac's sort of control of time. In the... It's the same thing, actually, as you mentioned at the start with regards to the, the 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 madness of the novel is that it it I mean at least this is this is sort of how I appreciate it is that the novel appears as a series of events as opposed to some sort of linearity it's like you're going from the next 
um, session of violence to, to the next. And there's not always any coherence as to how they're connected. Um, and so, and this is something you comment on in your book, is that Cormac does, sorry, McCarthy does retreat away from a sense of sort of um, traditional causality or linearity. And this also ties into something else that you mentioned in, with regards to the Glanton gang about Cormac, uh, McCarthy always describes them as um, always riding on. And then, you know, you have this awful display of violence and then the Glanton gang just rode on. And they're this sort of eternal, unstoppable force who, in relation to this other control from McCarthy with respect to just scene after scene, they just seem to be completely detached from any um, any sort of normal causality. And then, and then and that sort of, you inherit that as the reader as they might potentially just be unstoppable because they're not really in time. Hmm. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, there's a kind of, um, it seems like what McCarthy is trying to show us is that the violence is a compulsion. Um, that, um, that, as I said earlier, I mean, initially, there is a reason for their violence, but they quickly lose sight of the reason for their violence. Um, and they just kill just for the sheer pleasure of it. Or And it's not even clear that it's pleasurable at times. It, it almost feels like a base compulsion. Um, and I think what's interesting is that that compulsion really appears to undo Glanton, for example. You know, it seems like Glanton loses his mind at various points in the novel, um, but um, Judge Holden doesn't, right? Mm -hmm. That he is, um, uh, he is immune to, that, to the, that compulsion or to the madness that comes with that compulsion. Um, and, you know, I think, yeah, I mean, I think McCarthy is kind of asking us to come to terms with the violence that we um, did uh, during the conquest of the West um, to see that violence really as genocide um, rather than violence in service to some kind of um, purpose or ideals. Um, and then Blood Meridian ends up being a kind of rebuke to every Western that celebrates or justifies such violence. But it's it is it's really strange to read a novel where not plot <clears throat> seems to be the point, right? You know, you don't have a series of causally linked events in Blood Meridian, right? You just the the engine driving it forward is movement, right? And in some ways, that's that I think describes perhaps the the engine moving, you know, the engine that moved people forward um, in the 18th and 19th centuries, right? The the need to get to the Pacific Ocean to claim this land as their own. And do you think that's where what McCarthy is sort of? Um trying to get us to look towards with his the the idea that the, the now sort of famous quote war is god um do you think that is almost um almost commenting on what, what you were saying there and that in that in that those eras in that era that uh, blood meridian is working within our belief is in that there's going to be something like a utopia after after war and in that sense that we will get sort of drawn into these wars are you saying that that's what McCarthy thinks that that the the the, the aftermath of war is? 
Well, um, I'm trying. Yeah. Now, you were saying about uh, in the sort of 19th and 18th centuries, you just sort of there, there was almost this. Forgive me if I misread you here, but there's almost this propulsion to just keep going because you're on the right track, and it seems that war played um, a greater part uh, a greater part in that than people seemingly wanted to admit. Or perhaps they just couldn't entirely ignored it. And in this sense, is it sort of the McCarthyan view that war is God, but it isn't really as simple as that um, that statement pertains. It's not as if people are worshiping war. Mm-hmm. It doesn't seem to me. It seems to me that they've been over like overcome by the, like the spirit of war in a way. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I think when we think about that period in the United States history, that and I'm I'm going to draw upon Patricia Limerick here, who um, has a really great. Um, she's a New Western historic, uh, historian, and she has a book called Legacy of Conquest, and she talks about the way that um, European American settlers always saw themselves as innocent victims. Um, they, they never saw that they were in the wrong, right? They always saw, um, always blamed some, someone else. And so this is a quote from her book. She says, the dominant motive for moving West was improvement and opportunity, not injury to others. Few white Americans went West intending to ruin the natives and to spoil the content, continent, continent. Even when they were trespassers, Western Americans were hardly in their own eyes criminals, rather they were pioneers. The ends abundantly justified the means. Personal interest in the acquisition of property coincided with national interests in the acquisition of territory. Um, And she goes on to say, innocence of intention placed the course of events in a bright and positive light. So um, I think that, that when there was conflict, when there was violence, um, between uh, European Americans and Native Americans, uh, the European Americans always saw themselves as as victims rather than as aggressors. Uh, so that certainly puts the violence in a different light. I mean, I think that McCarthy. Um, I was just looking back. I mean, McCarthy has talked a little bit about violence in interviews, and and he says, I think this was an interview he did with the Wall Street Journal. He said, there's no such thing as life without bloodshed. I think the notion that the species can be improved in some way, that everyone lives in harmony, is a really dangerous idea. Those who are afflicted with this notion are the first ones to give up their souls, their freedom. Your desire that it will be that way will enslave you and make your life vacuous. I mean, I think that McCarthy just feels that violence is an inevitable part of life. And if you don't recognize that, you know, you're in danger of giving up your freedom. But then in, in that sense, then the Glanton gang does seem like a strange critique in that when you talk about um, the ends justify the means, mm-hmm. and there's this going to be this point where all of this is, you know, we're pioneers and all of this one day we'll have some sort of promised land or something along these lines. The Glanton gang seem entirely devoid of, there's never a mention of, one day you know as you as you mentioned at the start there's this idea that they're doing it for money which is a sort of an end but you're always going to need that end and then eventually there's no mention of as a, a why or a purpose as to them uh, and also I, you know i find it interesting that you mentioned that they don't enjoy these compulsions anymore and that's always the impression that i got that eventually it almost seemed like a chore like it that like they got so got to a town full of people and you think well they're going to have to kill them. Like, it just seems like an, almost like an exhaustion for them that, all oh, right, well, you know, we're going to have to do this now because that's what we do. And it seems that they were almost stuck in the ideal without a big part of the ideal. They were, they were 
the 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 ends was was gone. There was no there was no purpose for them, but they were stuck with those means and had nowhere else to go. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Other than listen to the judge, of course. Yeah, no, I think you're. I think you're right. I mean, I think that the. I think that maybe what McCarthy is trying to do or trying to say is that if 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 we had more of an understanding, as terrible as it is, about like the kind of human inclination towards violence, maybe we might make some different decisions, right? You know, like if um, you know if if you believe that, um, if you believe that, you know, like the kind of like that we are evolving towards a moment where we, (laughs) we stop killing each other, like that you are just making yourself incredibly vulnerable, Mm -hmm. you know, um, if that is your belief, right? Because there are always going to be people like the members of the Glanton gang, right? Um, And so I completely agree with you that there, there, you know, that the in the case of the Glanton game, the ends don't justify the means, right? That's clear that that's not the point of Blood Meridian. But it's also clear that we need to be more aware of like human propensity for violence, right? Even when that kind of, even when that violence is cloaked in kind of intellect and reason, right? Don't be fooled. McCarthy seems to be saying, you know, we can always find a way to rationalize violence, right? Or we can always find a way to intellectualize violence, but that doesn't that 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 doesn't um, kind of like take away from the fact that it's it's violence that it's murderous. Yeah, I think that's. Um... Uh, a very articulate point. Uh, is there anything you would like to to add about the book or your book, um, which you feel like we've glossed over, which is sort of important? Uh, no, I mean, I'll just, I'm, you know, make a pitch for the afterwards books. There, um, I think they're, I think it's really interesting to, um, well, I'm not, a, you know, I'm not a literary critic, and so these books are very much not works of literary criticism. They're meant to be accessible to anyone. Um, And they're also meant to make, um, you know, these great works of art accessible to, you know, to anyone. Um, uh, So, yeah. Okay. Whereabouts can uh, your book and the afterwards books be purchased? I think you can get them through, um, you can get them straight from the publisher through Fiction Advocate. You can get them through a small a distributor of small press books i, I don't exactly know the name um so available i think um unfortunately through amazon okay okay um yeah it seems like a good place to finish up um stephanie rents thanks very much thank you so much